Well, good morning, church. My name is Pastor Matt, for those who don't know me, pastor of discipleship here at Calvary. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 6. As we continue our conversations with Jesus, we'll look at this lengthy but very important chapter. As you're turning there, a brief update on our pastoral search. We're very thankful for the many of you who uh, were involved in nominating candidates last week. We're actively working right now on forming the committee. We've contacted folks to see if they'd be willing to serve, and please do continue praying for us and for those contacted for wisdom and clarity in the days ahead. Well, do you ever know somebody who is what you would call controversial? You know anybody who's a little controversial? Somebody who just loves to stir the pot. Somebody who brings up the awkward topic just to get a reaction from somebody. Uh, Maybe you have somebody in your family like that, and you just cringe a little bit at the Thanksgiving table when they start talking, because who knows where Uncle Bob is going to go in that conversation. Or someone in the office, perhaps. You can't even have a normal lunch with coworkers without this guy bringing up whatever the latest controversy is in politics or his strange opinions on this, that, or the other. Well, perhaps you today, as one of our students, feel this way about your dear old dad. He can't act normal around your friends. Can't he just not be weird for a few seconds around them? The answer is no. He cannot help it. He is a dad, and that's just part of it. All in all, I think we can all think of someone. Maybe right now your wife is elbowing you to notify you that you are, in fact, that person. Um, But they are all around us. Uh, But it's rare to find someone who loves to speak the truth and, and even controversial truth, or maybe just their opinion of the truth, without caring for people's feelings, while also being in perfect balance and being someone who speaks with grace, um, somebody who is caring and kind. That's a hard mix of attributes to find in someone. Can you even think of anybody who is both of those things, speaks truth and yet is caring and kind? Well, I was thinking through this, and, and Pastor Andrew actually came to mind for me. He's always a man of the word. He preached the truth for us for these many years, no matter how difficult it was. But yet he was also a kind and gracious person that anyone could talk to and find help. I always respected that. That's probably one of the things I most respected about him. A man of the word, but an encourager. That's a rare combination. Certainly one we should be looking for in our next pastor. But really, as I thought through our entire pastoral team, that's all of these guys that I am privileged to serve alongside From Pastor Jerry, Chase, Pastor Robert, our pastoral assistants, Robert Horn, Jeremy, and JJ, these are men of the word, and I am privileged to work alongside them, and we are all privileged to get to sit under them in the weeks to come and hear them because they love the word, they share truth, and they are men of grace, and they are here for you, whatever you need. But I also looked to the world of fiction, which I enjoy to do, uh, to see if there was any such person or figure Um, who would tell the truth and yet do so in a gracious manner. And the only ones I could think of, you're welcome to add to my list after the sermon, but I thought of my dear friend Gandalf. Uh, Because Gandalf could be both stern to a uh, a foolish young hobbit, but also very gracious and laugh and enjoy himself with them. I also thought of Aslan, the lion from Narnia, who famously was not a tame, not a safe lion, and yet was good. a balance of both. Interestingly, both those characters are based on another figure, and I think the only figure to capture both of these elements perfectly for us, and you can guess who that is, that is our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I submit to you today that Jesus 
is a controversial Christ. Now, you may say, that's a little irreverent to say about Jesus, isn't it? Well, hear me out. We've been talking about Jesus. We've seen him in incredible ways in the book of John so far. He's been kind and gracious to all these different types of people, from the self-righteous religious leader to the sinful woman at the well. He was gentle. He was lowly. He was compassionate. But if we're not careful, we can just look to those, our favorite passages about Jesus, and get a skewed view of him as just those things and not see another side to Jesus. He's completely perfect and balanced in all his attributes. He's never more one than the other. He's 100% all of it at the same time. And John 1.14 tells us that he is completely full of both grace and truth. But this truth-telling side, this controversial truth-teller, that's the side I want to draw out for us this morning. And it's as if the uh, gospel writer John anticipated that we might be thinking of Jesus as he's writing all these wonderful stories of Jesus' compassion— He almost anticipates we might be getting a skewed perspective, so he systematically places stories and accounts, true accounts, throughout this gospel to show us Jesus, the controversial figure. We saw one in John 2, in overturning the uh, the tables in the temple. Uh, There was one last week in chapter 5, where he healed that man on the Sabbath day, and he would often do that just to kind of get a reaction from the religious leaders. Uh, And then he would continue on in that chapter. We're not going to look at it because we're focusing on just the conversations in the Gospel of John. So we're skipping ahead to chapter 6. But you can study the rest of chapter 5 and see that he he speaks about his great authority. He claims to be equal with the Father. Uh, So he's really stirring the pot in this section in John. But I think here in John 6, we find the most controversial speech, the most controversial conversation Jesus had, the most cringeworthy point in his ministry, at least so far. And so controversial is this passage we're going to study that I have never seen it depicted in any movie, any show about Jesus' life. I, I, I don't remember it in the Sunday school flannel graph lessons. Uh, it's kind of skipped over because the first half of chapter 6 is very familiar. It's the feeding of the 5,000, and we all love that, the small uh, boy who brought a small lunch and had a conversation with Andrew, Philip, and Jesus there, and Jesus multiplied the food for 5,000 people. They had many leftovers, and then as if that wasn't awesome enough, he then proceeds to walk on the water to his disciples as they cross over back to Capernaum. We've seen that in many, many accounts, and it's an awesome, awesome account uh, that we can study and certainly learn from. But they often stop right there, walking on water, and don't include the rest of chapter 6 for some reasons, because it is a bit controversial. And Jesus will, in fact, have a conversation with the crowd where he, in effect, says, eat me and drink my blood. Now, you don't believe me that Jesus said this? Well, we're going to finish the chapter. Jeremy read a portion of it. We're going to see the climax of his controversial conversation, and we're going to see its effects on the crowd. Now, Uh, You even notice we had some dialogue there with the responsive reading. This is Jesus speaking in a synagogue, and that's often how they would do the synagogue sermon. The crowd would kind of banter with the speaker. Now, I am not going to make you do any more of that, and I'm not going to open the floor up because who knows what could happen. We had that last week, and and who knows what Dick Reed would say this week, so we should should probably not open it up. But uh, that that idea is kind of good, so uh, we've done that from time to time here. But sit back and relax, and I will read for us here. Uh, starting in verse 52, we'll skip ahead a little bit. We'll cover those verses we skipped, but uh, let's start in John chapter 6, verse 52 through 69. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, 
Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We see here in response to this controversial speech that many walked away. Many gave it up. Many of his so-called disciples abandoned Jesus after this speech. Does that sound familiar to you? In our day and age, but really in every age, in every generation, we find the word speaking to us in ways that offend. There's hard truths in the Bible. We see Jesus speaking to us through the word in a way that challenges, in a way that causes us to cringe, in a way that is controversial. Every part of our culture, every part of every generation has different truths that they find offensive. But each one of us is confronted with Jesus' words and we respond, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Certainly my own generation has had its issues with some of Jesus' words, particularly about sexuality, gender roles, the value of life, things like this. In fact, I remember having my own season, as we all do from time to time, of, of doubt and discouragement and questioning and wondering, why did Jesus have to say so much about X, Y, or Z? Why did he have to say something like homosexuality was wrong? Why couldn't we just compromise on this issue? It certainly would be a lot easier for us if we could. We'd be more popular. But far from driving me away, it was actually this passage in John 6 that God used in my life. I can remember exactly where I was, where it really hit home to me, where these controversial words of Jesus were used by God to draw me back to rest in the truth. I realized that actually in my heart of hearts, I want a controversial Christ. I want to serve a God who's big enough, who's amazing enough, who is in fact God enough to disagree with me. Because if all the truth was easy to accept, I would have to wonder if I really knew the truth or if I just knew my opinions. Friends, if the Bible never ruffles your feathers, 
If you never hear a sermon from the Word of God and find yourself hmm, a little offended, a little taken aback, if God always happens to agree with you on every matter of your personality, of culture, of politics, of, of just your preferences, you should ask yourself, hmm, do I really believe in God and His Word, or do I just believe in me and my opinions? Am I reading the Word to shape me or reading my opinions back into the Word? Because God disagrees with every one of us over different things, for sure, different things for different generations, different parts we struggle with, depending on our background. But friends, newsflash for you, we are all sinful, and therefore we are all wrong in some way, shape, or form. In fact, I'd like you to turn to your neighbor today and say to them, you are not always right. Go ahead and do it. (laughs) Very good. Now turn to your other neighbor. Turn to the neighbor on the other side and say, I am not always right. You don't escape. Very good, very good. So husbands, congratulations, you can now remind your wife that she is not always right. But wives, you can remind your husbands that he is not always right either. Every generation struggles with different things, but every generation is confronted by Jesus, this controversial Christ, and has to choose whether to say he's a liar, he's a lunatic, he's crazy, or he is Lord of all, as C.S. Lewis famously said. So what is it for you? When was the last time the word ruffled your feathers, confronted you with reality and your need for change? So hear Jesus' words in this controversial passage and let them inspire you to truly believe in him, in all of him, not just Jesus, the the feeder of the 5,000, not just Jesus, the one who walks on water, but the Jesus at the end of chapter 6 who sometimes says crazy, hard to understand, hard to believe things. So what do we learn from Jesus in this conversation with the crowd and their reaction? And what does Jesus say to us who disagree with him or struggle with what he says and perhaps even are tempted to leave it all behind or to compromise? Well, two words I want to draw out from this passage this morning. They are this, behold and come. Behold and come. Behold Jesus and come to him, the bread of life. The bread of life. First, let's start with Behold, behold with more than your physical eyes, behold with spiritual eyes, the bread of life. Now, for those of you who are very astute and some of my favorite people, no doubt, you say to yourself, wait a second, Matt, didn't you use this word in the sermon you preached at Christmas? Are you just really a big fan of this word or do you have no imagination? Probably both. Uh, But I like this word. It's a great word. It's a great biblical word. Um, And if you remember from Christmas time, we talked about our binoculars, which I think is a great illustration of the word behold. I won't make you pull them out again. Uh, But we focus on something. It's not just seeing something. It's looking intently at something. It's fixating on something. It's the difference between scrolling on your phone through Instagram and spending a second on each picture and sitting in an art gallery before a painting and just looking at it for hours on end. That's what it means to behold. And the word gives us the idea that this is more than just physical sight. This is something spiritual. We are spiritually gazing on something. And that's what Jesus is after in uh, this speech. And in the Gospel of John, Jesus has constantly used the physical things of life to illustrate the spiritual. But it often causes confusion for those who listen to him. Uh, we as humans tend to focus on just the physical. We, we see things around us, we get captivated by those things, and we have a hard time beholding beyond and seeing spiritual realities. Think about Nicodemus in John chapter 3. When Jesus said, you must be born again, he couldn't get away from the physical picture and said, do I have to go into my mother's womb and be born again? 
and got confused. Or the woman at the well, when Jesus said he offered her living water, she responded much like these people do and said, hey, give me this water. Uh, I'd love to have this water. But Jesus was speaking spiritually. So here the people are confused because they assume Jesus in this speech is just talking about physical realities. So here's some of the areas they get confused about. First of all, earlier in the passage, we didn't read it, in 14 and 15, uh, they want Jesus to be their physical king. After the feeding of the 5,000, they say, this guy is awesome. He would make a great king. Let's go take him and make him king. He's the new Moses. He is the Messiah. Let's get this guy. And Jesus has to withdraw from them. They want to be physically freed from the Romans, but that is not what Jesus is after in his first coming. They also, when they find him across the lake, as Jeremy read earlier, in 25 and 27, 30 and 34, they're having this conversation where Jesus says, you guys are really after physical signs. You want me to perform more magic tricks, more wonders for you to see. You want more bread. Uh, You want me to be like Moses who gave manna every day, bread from heaven. Uh, And Jesus says, no, you guys need a different kind of food, a spiritual food that really lasts. And when they ask him for it, he says, well, it's actually me. I am the bread of life. And then they think of Jesus later in the passage as just a physical person. They say, isn't this guy who says he came from heaven, isn't he just the son of Joseph and Mary? They only see him as a man, not as the Messiah. They probably knew Mary and Joseph. Capernaum was near to Nazareth, and they couldn't think of Jesus as anything more than this boy who grew up nearby. And then finally, when they get to the controversial section, Uh, they think of Jesus only talking about physical eating and drinking. And so they get really confused and and think he means to actually eat him. And and Jesus corrects them in 61 through 65. And in verse 63, he says, hey, it's the spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help whatsoever. So don't rely on the flesh. Don't rely on what's physical to understand. You have to behold. You have to look with more than just physical eyes. In fact, earlier in verse 36, he condemns him. And he says, you have seen me with your physical eyes. You've seen my miracles, and yet you don't believe. And so he's calling them to behold, to look beyond what they can see, and not to be so entrapped and focused on what they can see and what they want him to do for them in the physical realm. Now, don't be too harsh on this crowd, because we all tend to be like this. We all tend to focus on just the things we can see, just the here and now. How can I get Jesus to make my life better here on earth? We don't behold God seated on his throne. We don't turn our eyes to Jesus and look in his face. We look at the things of this world. We look at what we can see, what's pressing in on our lives. And because of that, we start to drift away. We start to doubt. Maybe not in the sense of deconstruction in our day and age, or even it's these disciples left Jesus at the end of this chapter. But we focus so much on the physical that we drift away in our minds and we put Jesus in a box. Jesus is just for Sundays. Jesus doesn't have anything to say about the rest of my life and, and we put him aside. Now you say, surely not us. We're church folks here. We're spiffed up. We're all good. We're not like those young people deconstructing on Instagram or Twitter. We're not like that. We would never, ever leave Jesus. Well, I want you to consider your life compared to these folks here. Here's some questions. Do you focus on just a physical kingdom? Is all your time and worry and energy spent on beholding the woes of our politics here in America, or do you spend more time focusing on the glories of the gospel? 
Are you so fixated on the success of our physical country or our, our physical community that you neglect your spiritual better country and your mission to evangelize the lost? Do you just want Jesus to give you physical success, prosperity, health? Is all your time spent praying and worrying for the here and now? Do you ever pray for things beyond the physical, for spiritual growth? Consider this quote from C.S. Lewis. If a voice said to me, and one I couldn't disbelieve, that you shall never see the face of God, never help to save a neighbor's soul, never be free from sin, and you shall live in perfect health till you are 100 years old, very rich, and die the most famous man in the world, and pass into a twilight consciousness of a vaguely pleasant sort forever, how much would it really worry me? How much would it worry you to have all your physical needs met and yet never see the face of God? Do you only see Jesus as small, not as Lord of all? Like them, do you only see Jesus in a limited way? He's just a man. No, surely we would never see him that way. Well, think about what you want from him. Do you ask for things, and when he doesn't answer, do you get cynical? Do you complain that life is not fair? Do you only think about the physical things and not spiritual realities? And it could be different things for different ones of us. Different elements of this physical world pull at us in different ways. Perhaps for you it's money or sexual pleasure or your popularity. We all have idols. We all have major struggles that we fixate on in this life, on this earth. And for each generation, it's different. For the younger, perhaps it's the allure of the world telling you to choose your own identity. Choose your own truth. Pursue your own pleasure. No one can tell you what to do. For the older, perhaps it's the allure of the world of picking yourself up by your own bootstraps. Being independent. You don't need anyone. This life is the only one that counts. And that's how you evaluate and, and, and put worth on people. Now we know these things don't satisfy. We don't know the things of this earth do not give us satisfaction, but yet we look to them over and over and over again. In fact, the Lord recently convicted me of my own life with this truth, that I would rather be unsatisfied with the world than to be satisfied with Jesus. I'd rather be content with physical things, prosperity on the physical realm, pleasures and popularity and things of this life, even though I know they don't satisfy than to look and be satisfied by Jesus. Our passage we'll study this week in community groups in 1 Corinthians 10 gives us a warning to beware our idols like the people of Israel, to take heed lest you fall. So, evaluate your life. How are you tempted? What do you look to besides the bread of life to satisfy? How do you focus on your, just the physical and not on the spiritual? And when was the last time you spent dedicated time beholding God in the word and in prayer? Real dedicated time, not a quick thing, but you've just spent time in his presence. Friends, we're all in danger of leaving Christ for things that are physical. So what do we do? How can we change? Well, we must follow Jesus' counsel in verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on, or we could say beholds the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So we behold Jesus. We turn our eyes off of the physical. We turn it on our Savior when we find him to be our all in all. We do this for the first time if we've never done it before, but then it doesn't stop just because you are a believer. We have to do it over and over and over again in daily life. And what do we do 
with what we see. Well, that brings us to our second point. We come. We behold the bread of life, and then we come and feast on it and find ourselves filled. We find that it is a feast that satisfies. Well, what does it mean to come? Come is a word that's used a lot in the Gospel of John. It's a fantastic word. I love it. In fact, it's used so much in John, particularly in chapter 1, but elsewhere as well, that we made it our theme title this year. You can see it on the posters. Come and see. We could say, come and behold. I just flipped the order of them. Behold and come. So we first look off the physical. We, we turn from all that attracts us in this earth. We run to the Father. He stands with open arms, as the song we sang talks about. And we come to him and find in him all we need. Or as how the Bible ends in the book of Revelation, in Revelation twenty-two seventeen, it says, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. Come is the invitation of the word. Come and behold Jesus. Now we use this word in parenting. Those of you who are parents here today, you know this word. Uh, there's a come, you say to your child in anger, right? There is a come and get yourself over here right this minute. Perhaps your language is a little stronger than that, I don't know. Uh, but come here right now. But that's not the come we're talking about. We're talking about the come where you walk in from work and the child is running towards you and you say, come here, and you pull them into your arms. Or the come when they are crying and they are hurt and you say, come here, and you comfort them and you pull them into your arms. That's the form of come that Jesus is talking about here. When he says in verses 37 and 38, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Verse 38, for I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is an incredible truth. Jesus came down from heaven so we could come to him. He came so we could come to him. That's incredible. So what are we coming to? Well, he specifically says in verse 48 that we come to the bread of life. I am the bread of life, he says. This is the first time we've seen one of these in the Gospel of John. First time we have one of these seven I am statements. They're great things to meditate on. In fact, great things to pray through and, and praise Jesus for these different aspects of who he is. We've put them up on posters throughout the church building just to help us remember who our Savior is that we get to come and see. But this one right here, I think, is, is probably one of my favorites. Probably because I just love bread. Amen? Amen. How many of you like bread? Do you like bread? I could probably eat a meal of just bread. In fact, this, this screen here is making me hungry already. Uh, but we must not focus on the physical, friends. We must focus on the spiritual. Uh, but don't worry, Panera Bread will be glad to uh, feed you physically after this, I am sure. Uh, but we, we like bread. Uh, it's, in, in this time period, more so than in ours, it was just the stuff of life, how you survive. Um, you eat this bread. And so Jesus is using it to illustrate who he is. And, and different aspects of this we can draw out. First of all, just simply he satisfies. He says he will resolve all spiritual hunger. He will resolve all spiritual thirsting in verse 35. The way he describes himself as a bread of life is like coming to a Thanksgiving feast where everything is spread out, everything is laid out. No one needs to leave the table hungry. In fact, everyone who comes will be stuffed they will be satisfied when they come to this table. And this table has room for everyone. There's a chair for everyone who will come. In fact, it's around this table that we find unity. 
as a church. When we behold the things of this life, we, we put our own preferences, we have our own bags, especially in this process where we're, we're looking for what's next for our church. We become disunified by looking at the things of this life. But as we turn our gaze off of that and come to the table, to the bread of life, we find unity as we are satisfied in him. We tuck in, we eat at the table, the bread of life, unified by being satisfied in Jesus. But Jesus is also saying here that he is better bread than the manna the people of Israel experienced in the wilderness. They ate it and they still died. But Jesus says, if you eat of this bread that I am offering, you will have eternal life. This is the bread of life, he says. And John constantly talks about this word life. And we've even talked about it before, how Jesus is our life. But it's more than just life here and now. He's talking about eternal life. Life that transcends death itself, starting from now until forever. I will raise him up on the last day, Jesus says multiple times in this passage. But the final aspect of this is that he says his bread is his physical body given for the life of the world, in verse 51. And this is where it takes a turn and gets controversial. They react, they're weirded out by this. How can this guy say he gives us his flesh to eat? But then he doubles down in verses 53 through 58, what we read earlier. And he uses even stronger language for this. In fact, he uses the word to feed on his flesh, which would be like an animal munching on its food. He uses very strong language and even adds drinking his blood, which would have been very scandalous for a Jew to even think about in this day and age. So what is he getting at? Well, he's not talking about communion or the Lord's Supper, or perhaps in your background, you heard it as the Eucharist. That's not what he's referring to here at all. Now, we will partake in this next week. It'll be a joyous time as we prepare to celebrate his crucifixion and resurrection. It'll be a, a spiritual action where the physical bread and the juice just remind us of what Jesus did for us. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here. He's not saying to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the process of communion. Instead, he's talking about believing. He's using these words, eat and drink, as a metaphor for how we believe in Jesus and accept him. Believe in his broken body, crucified for us on the cross, bearing our sins and his shed blood there that wipes away all that is stained within us. He says this is true food. This is truer than any physical food we could eat in verse 55. This is what it means to abide in him. And he's going to talk more about that in John 15. This is what it means to enter into the life of the father, he says in verse 57. And this is bread that makes you truly live forever, not like manna in verse 58. So he says, come and feast on this bread. But how, Jesus, how do we come to him? Are we not too sinful? Are we not too stained? Are we not too broken to come and feast on this bread of life? How can we possibly come to them, come to him? And that's a question the crowd actually asks early in this chapter. We read it in our scripture reading. When they first talk to Jesus, he corrects them. He says there is a wrong way to come, where there's a come where you're trying just to get something out of Jesus. They want a sign. They want him to multiply bread some more. Instead, Jesus says, you should come to me for food that lasts. A living bread, which Jesus says he's gladly going to give to them for free. All they have to do is come. Well, what do we have to do to earn this? What works do God require, they ask in verse 28. And Jesus, in an amazing truth in verse 29, he says, this is the work of God, that you believe in him who the Father has sent. 
The Father has sent the Son, and all that's required, the only work required is not even really a work. It's just to turn your eyes upon him and believe in him. That's an incredible truth. No works required. But it gets even more incredible. Because secondly, he says that the Father is in fact drawing you to him. Because before we even believe, we realize that we can't even come to him on our own. We're so sinful that we would have never come to him. We would have just spent all our lives feasting on the rotten bread of the world and we would have gone hungry until we died and were condemned eternally to hell in torment because of our sin. But Jesus speaks an amazing truth about coming to him in verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. So not only is no work required, just belief, but even the act of coming in faith is done by the Father as he draws our hearts to him. He knows those who are his. He knows even that Judas will betray him as the chapter ends. But in his sovereign grace, Jesus says that the Father grants us this belief, this coming to him in verse 65. But how do I know if the Father has drawn me? How do I know if he's doing this? Well, think back on your life. If you believed in Jesus... If you belong to him, don't fret. Instead, think back to your journey to come to know him. And I think you'll see that he was drawing you maybe over a long period of time and many sins until finally you came to a place where you believed in him. Or maybe like me at a young age, growing up in a Christian home, all of these are aspects of God drawing us by his spirit in our hearts to come to him and place our faith in him. It's a difficult truth to comprehend, but it is an amazing truth that we should praise God for. So if you haven't ever believed in this Jesus, my friend, please stop and consider. You're here in this church. You're hearing this passage and God's sovereignty. God has placed us in the book of John where there's so many wonderful truths about coming and seeing Jesus. Perhaps God has been working in your heart over weeks on end. And maybe you've realized that everything else in your life has not satisfied you. You feel empty. You feel hopeless. Friends, that's what the Father is using to draw you to himself. He wants you to come to the bread of life. He wants you to behold his son and come. And he's ready with open arms to welcome you. He is drawing you. But perhaps that's not you, but you're in a season of doubt and struggle, perhaps even deconstruction of what you once believed. He's drawing you as well, my friend, I believe. Perhaps even the doubts you're wrestling with are part of that process where he's drawing you even closer to himself. Now, if you truly professed Christ and believed, if you truly came to him, then he has set his seal on you. He will not let you go. You may be prone to wander, but as the songwriter reminded us, he has taken our heart and sealed it. We are his and we will never be cast out if you truly have come to him. Or perhaps you'll realize that you never did come to him. You never did truly have faith. You were just going along with the flow, like perhaps this crowd, only professing to be a disciple and later leaving. Well, you too can come to him. You too can be drawn to him. He is working in your life to draw you to himself. So come, wherever you're at, come to him and he will receive you back. He loves prodigals. He loves to take sinners and redeem them. And he requires nothing of you but that you come. Leave the rotten bread of the world and run to the bread of life. This brings us back to where we started, to the response 
to Jesus's message. And it's our option still today. Jesus speaks to each of us as he did to the crowd, as he did to his 12 disciples. He says, do you take offense at this? Do you want to go away as well? There's two options here. We can, like many did, walk away. Instead of coming, we can leave. We can deconstruct. We can maybe gradually fade off from the things of God. We may still even come to church, but in our minds, we have become cynical, bitter, and we have left our Savior, and we have gone away. The things of this world have drawn us off. Or we can be like Peter. I love his response in verse 68 and 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, imagine, wives, if your husband, you asked him, hey, are you going to leave me? And your husband says to you, well, I don't really have any other choice. Uh, That would not be very romantic, would it? Uh, And and some can read in this, uh, Peter's being a little harsh here, but that's kind of how Peter is. He's blunt, he's honest, and, and Jesus loves him for it. And it's a great response. Well, what other options do I have? says Peter. You are the Holy One of God. We may not always enjoy our walk with Jesus. We may disagree with elements of it and wrestle with it, but it is the truth. It is the words of eternal life. All other ground is sinking sand. All other water doesn't quench our thirst. All other bread is moldy and rotten. Only Jesus satisfies our longings. So which will you choose? Will you walk away Or will you put on Jesus the only option and find in him your satisfaction? Well, as you evaluate your choice, three simple applications for you. Three applications. First of all, as we were just talking about, evaluate your other options. If you're going through a season of wrestling, I want you to actually think and apply the same scrutiny that you've applied to your Christianity, all the doubts and questions you've asked of this faith, ask of where you're headed as well. Does this new option you're leaving Christianity for actually really satisfy? Apply the same scrutiny to it. Sure, you may struggle with the problem of evil and why God allows pain. But is there any other option in the world? Is there any better option? You could leave Christianity, but it actually would become harder. Because there's no purpose at all if there's no God at all in your suffering. Maybe Christ's standards on sexuality are difficult for you to accept, but if there is no God, there's no firm basis for morality or justice at all. Now, this applies to believers as well. If you apply this to your sin struggles, if you stop when you're tempted by whatever your sin struggles are and actually think to yourself, hmm, before I do this thing, does it actually satisfy? I've tried it before. It's never satisfied me before. If we actually stop to consider before we give in, if we lift our eyes off the physical and behold him, we'll find that he really is the best option and we'll find ourselves going to those things less often. Speaking of which, uh, evaluate your spiritual life in depth. To what other breads do you tend to go? Spend some time asking God to reveal what sin struggles you have and, and where your heart tends to go. And I know that as you honestly come to the word and seek for him to reveal, he will reveal to you where you're struggling. You will come under conviction and you can confess and repent of those things and ask for help. 
As you would do this process, I've uh, put together a blog post taking a number of questions, evaluation questions from different sources. Uh, you could see it on our website, on our Calvary blog, or I'll be sending it out in the email, posting it on social media this week. A series of evaluation questions to find out where you tend to struggle. Different ways for different ones of us, the motivations behind our struggles, encourage you to work through those and pray through those in the weeks ahead. And then finally, when you do sin, when you find yourself struggling, doubting, wandering, I encourage you to come back to him immediately, again and again and again. There's no need to wait. There's no need to clean yourself up. There's no need to earn his favor back. You come freely. His arms are open wide to you, both at the moment of salvation and every moment after that. It takes time to train ourselves to do this, that nothing is going to separate us, that he will not cast us out. And only by rehearsing these things over and over can we find the motivation actually to fight the sin. So if we go straight from our sin to our Savior, we'll find ourselves going to our sin less often. So do that. I encourage you to train your heart in that regard. This is Jesus. He is controversial. He's caring. He's full of grace. He's full of truth. So let's end with an encouraging phrase out of this passage. Verse 37. As we are drawn by the Father to come to him, we come, we believe. And Jesus says, those who come to me, I will never cast out. That's a great truth to take into your week. John Bunyan wrote a book on this verse and encouraged us to think through this phrase, I will never cast out, when our flesh raises excuses for why we can't come to God. Dane Ortland and Gentle and Lowly drew this out and added to it. I've updated and adapted some of the words as well, and I've put together another little responsive reading. Bear with me one more time, and you won't have to do it again, I promise. But here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise an objection, and I want you to respond with the words of John 6.37, I will never cast out. It'll be on the screen if you forget your line. Uh, it'll be right there for you. But I hope this just reminds you of this truth and lets it settle in a little bit more as we prepare to go from here. This time I will let you be Jesus, since you had to be the crowd last time, and I will be uh, us and all our excuses we could use to not come to him. Well, first, I'm a great sinner. That's what you say. But Jesus says, I will never cast out. You say, I'm an old sinner. I've sinned it up for many, many years without change. But Jesus says, I will never cast out. But I am a young sinner. I've been sowing my wild oats. I've not been caring for the things of God. I've maybe even been going through a series of doubt and deconstruction. But Jesus says, I will never cast out. But I have nothing good to bring with me, says your heart. But Jesus says, I never Well, here's the thing. This past week I sinned. It's not just my past when I sinned before I got saved. It's my present. I sinned this week. I sinned today. I sinned on my way to church. I sinned in church this morning, says your heart. But Jesus says, I But I don't know if I can break free of this any time soon, says your heart. Jesus says, But you say, the more ugliness, the more of the ugliness in me that you discover, Jesus, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. You'll cast me out. But Jesus says, I will never cast Friends, saved, unsaved, wherever you're at, old, young, whatever draws you away, know this truth. If you come, if you behold Jesus, the bread of life, to satisfy all hunger, to end all thirst, if you come to him, 
you will be satisfied. And he will never cast you out. This is the truth that we can stand on. This is the truth we can take with us and speak to our own hearts this week. When the excuses rise, when the flesh tempts us, he will never cast us out. Run to him, come to him, and he will never cast you out. Let us pray. Father, we come before you again, and we rehearse this truth. We've studied this passage. We've seen this Jesus, this bread of life. And I pray that it wouldn't just be a nice thing to hear on a Sunday morning, but Lord, that it would go down deep, that we would spend some time this week evaluating our lives. If we are believers, Lord, give us insight into our own wicked hearts to know where we are drawn astray, but also give us comfort. You are both grace and truth, so give us the grace to know that you will not cast us off and that to motivate us to run to you instead of to these things. Lord, I pray for those here who do not know you. I pray that you, as you have said in your word, would draw them to yourself, that you would work in whatever circumstance is needed, that you would speak to their hearts, that you would reveal your truth to them, that you would remind them of your grace and truth, that you stand with open arms for all who would desire to come and believe in you. Turn from this world and all its distractions and run to you. Thank you for being a gracious father, willing to take us back, willing to take anyone. I pray that you would do a work that only your spirit can do of drawing hearts to yourself today. We pray all this 